You know, last year, a year ago, this coming Saturday, uh, was a day that I will never forget for the rest of my life. It was a day that my wife was diagnosed with cancer. It hit me, hit us like a ton of bricks. When you love somebody very dearly and they get that diagnosis and then the flood of information hits you about all the things you're going to have to do and learn, I will admit that last week's message that Nick Todd shared where he shares the story of Mary and Martha who believed in the power of Jesus Christ, who believed that he could have healed their brother, but their brother died, and they were upset because Jesus hadn't shown up. And they asked the question, where have you been? And I will admit, those questions come uninvited. Even though I did not doubt that Jesus could heal my wife, that Jesus is still in control even the day before that and will be the day after, I still will admit that the emotions come uninvited. And they come and they say, Jesus, where have you been? Why did you let this happen? We were told many things we were going to have to go through over the next several months. It's overwhelming because you have to research each one. Each one is led by another step. I very carefully chose not to bring all that up, up on this stage because this isn't about a human being. This time is where we worship on God. And there's a reason why I'm sharing this today and feel the freedom to do so. But after going through that journey and having some dark moments, but, but mostly seeing God at work, I can tell you that 2017, as I reflect upon it, was a year of blessing, not a year of regret. And I, I can say that because of what Jesus has done in our lives. Regardless of what the outcome would have been, I can tell you, Jesus was working in our lives even when the answers were elusive. I can tell you that the passage we worked through last week where it talks about the body being a tent makes sense to me when you feel the vulnerability of life. That this body we're in is just a tent. It is a temporary dwelling. It's not meant for permanence. It's very vulnerable to the elements, if you will. We discovered that. You know, my wife was 42 last year. She's not now. <laughs> She's still 43. <laughs> but the journey in this reminds you that you never know. While I can say, where have you been, God? Just like what we heard last week. And I can also say, I now can appreciate, even in my 40s, that yes, life is a gift each and every day. And that it's a tent we live in. And therefore, as Paul says to a group of people in Corinthians where it's like, your life is but a tent. And if you're in that place, you are vulnerable. But guess what? There is a maker who is preparing and mapping out your life. And there is a place that is not like a tent. It's a permanent structure that you will spend eternity with them. So therefore, when death is imminent, you don't have to walk in fear of it. But you can fight to stay alive. But then how you live that life is a choice you must make. And that was the charge of Paul last week, that it's like, you have this tent, it's a body. So while you're in it, live it out to the glory of God. 
Let your life be that aroma that we've spoken about from out of this text over the last few weeks. That be your being near Christ so that as you're near Christ, the aroma of him smells of you and people, even though when you're not speaking, encounter the aroma of Christ in your life. And that by the way you live your life, it shines a spotlight that there's other behind you. Christ is behind you and in front of you and leading you, and you become that beacon of light to others. That's, again, what Paul was advocating to a group of people who felt like their life was in peril. But it is also true that, as he says, that as you experience and you go through these things, there are moments when you can celebrate Jesus. And I can say, I'm going to celebrate this morning because my wife had a significant surgery as part of her cancer journey two weeks ago. This can't, this part of our cancer journey was going to reveal, quite frankly, what's the outcome of all the work we've done over the last year. And I can tell you, we got the report this week that my wife is cancer free. There's joy in the journey, and be careful when you hug. She's still recovering from surgery. <laughs> But I can tell you that while it would be hard to praise even in the darkness without that outcome, I've walked with people that haven't always had the same outcomes. And it's not easy praising Jesus. I can tell you it was not easy praising Jesus when we didn't have that answer. But the same thing holds true. We're in these tents. She's been given a little bit more time in that tent. Praise God. But we're all intense. God wants to use you while you're in that temporary dwelling. And then he's anxious to receive you into a much more permanent dwelling called eternity to walk with him and live with him forever. And that comes through a relationship by faith in Jesus Christ. And so I praise God and I feel like that's the best way I can reflect upon what we've been teaching about over the last few weeks by celebrating him in this moment. So having said that, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll continue on in this series. It's an amazing series when you consider that Paul, who is the founding pastor of this church, but it has gone on and left the city of Corinth to find, uh, found other churches. Here it is. He is now like pleading and encouraging a church that does not care for him anymore. You see, they've had a lot of interactions that weren't feel-good interactions. He had visited them multiple times because they were a church that was kind of erratic. They were exploring things spiritually that were going beyond the bounds of God's intent. So he called them out for some of those things, and it was painful, to the point where they're saying, you no longer have authority over us. But yet, somehow, some way, Paul still felt compelled to keep speaking into their life. Not, and this, the tone of this letter is encouraging. It's actually affirming, it's pleading with, it's giving them confidence. He's raising them up in spite of the fact that at the same time, they're accusing Paul of harshness and, and being illegitimate as an apostle. So what kind of relationship or, or what kind of motive would I say is going on in Paul that he would continue out and doing this with a fractured relationship. I do think that there is a hope that is built within Paul that he wants to see the relationship between him and this church be reconciled. 
I also do believe that, that's, that while that's important to him, he's most, he's most motivated to make sure that they find strength in the ministry that they've been called to, which is why he spoke to them being the aroma of Christ, the radiance of Christ, and yes, being in these, these dwellings that, that are temporary, and, and they knew that because they were suffering martyrdom and they were suffering greatly for the name of Christ. They understood life's temporariness, but he was saying, then use this through the competence of Christ to be a blessing to the world. All this while knowing they did not see him as a legitimate leader, did not see him anymore as authoritative, and struggled with his harsh words from other encounters. But now he's loving on them, he's encouraging them. And you have to say, why is Paul going to all this effort with this church? So I want us to begin in verse 12 to get a little bit more context because now Paul's starting to speak to the realities of the relationship. He knows that they're struggling to receive from him, but yet he's just given them in strong and encouraging word in chapters 4 and the early parts of chapter 5 that he's helping them get their feet back underneath them. So starting in verse 11, I'm sorry, where it says this, since then... We know, because, and he's saying since then because he's just finished in verse uh, 10 saying, we're all going to have to give an account, both for good and for bad, how we've lived in this tent. So we're going to have to give an account. So in knowing that, that God is going to cause us to have to give an account, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the spirit or in the heart, I should say. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Let me stop there, and then we'll continue on here in a moment. Broken relationship. Paul is speaking to this group of people. He's giving them encouraging words. He's affirming them. He's trying to give them strength. And now he says... I am not trying to compliment myself or commend myself to you so that I can be built up myself, but rather he's doing this to help them understand that we're on a journey together. There's a relationship here that he's trying to draw within. And then he says, if some think that I am crazy then know that it's by the love of Christ. So he's already said that I'm not complimenting myself before you for my own sake, but rather it is that I love the Lord and I'm letting him work through me. And so it is this love of Christ that makes me crazy in the eyes of others and loving on those who might reject me. Which is really important to understand is that this, this idea in verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14 is saying, I am compelled, I am obligated, I am motivated to keep doing this ministry with you because of the love of Christ. So his motive is being put right there in front of him to say, listen, I am loving on you 
Even though he's aware and they're aware, this relationship isn't intact right now. I'm loving on you. I am motivated to love you because of the love of Christ. See, the reality is that for disciples, those who are followers of Christ, the most important thing that that the journey of Christ begins with is loving him. And when you love him, it leads to understanding what's upon his heart becomes upon your heart, and therefore you love others. And that's why we say the marks of a disciple are people who love God, then love people. They do so because they've, they're understanding truth and they're living it out, and they proclaim Jesus. That is the marks that we have over there on the wall that, that says that's what a disciple of Christ looks like. And so Paul is saying here is, listen, I am compelled I am obligated. I am motivated by the love I have for Christ to keep loving on those others who might not even love me back. And if you think I'm crazy, then just consider it a work of Christ on a crazy man's part. And if you think I'm right-minded, then you just know that I'm doing it for you. But then he says this in in, in verse 15, uh, just to sink it in. He says, and Christ died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but rather for him who died for them and was raised again. So Paul's saying, okay, so I have been made into this person I am because of Christ. I'm being motivated by the love of Christ. So therefore, I live for Christ. This is consistent with the other teachings in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 6, verse 4, it says, we walk in this new life because of Christ. So it's a new life we're walking in because of Christ. And then we live through Christ. So we're living out this daily life through Christ, according to what John says in 1 John 4, 9. And then that affirms what it's saying that we, because Christ died for us, we live for Christ, as what it says here in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 5. And then we also then get to live with Christ, which is the anticipation that we all have from Romans chapter 7, verse 4. How Rearsby, Warren Rearsby, who's a great commentarian, he puts it this way. Christ died that we might live through him, that we might then live for him, and that we might live with him. So we live because of Christ, so we live through him, for him, that we might someday anticipate living with him. That is the source of Paul's being, which is why he's saying, I am motivated out of love for Christ to keep loving on you. An important context. And so in spite of the irreconciled relationship, he's motivated by love to keep making sure that things will change in the relationship. And so in this situation, Paul could just simply write off the Corinthian church and look at them as just being hard-headed, stubborn in, 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 in heart, and, and just write them off and let them fall prey to the very things that their lives were taking them towards. Or because they were his brothers and sisters in Christ, he's motivated by love for Christ to help them continue to find strength, which is why he was focused in on them and their situation, not on himself. I can relate to this in one degree, that when you feel like it's family you're dealing with, your motivation to see that reconciliation happen, you'll go to great ends to make sure that reconciliation's always on the table. 
For example, when I was uh, 16 years old, one of the greatest moments, and when it comes to a need for reconciliation, there is the offender and there's the offendee. Sometimes they're both offending each other, but there's usually an initiation of the offender. And in this case, I was the offender. When I was 16 years old, and you've heard this story begin this way before, uh, where there was this girl, okay? Now, when I was, for those who knew me as a teenager, they would say that's how everything started for me. There was this girl. And so there was this girl uh, that I was interested in dating, and she was just a few months younger than me. I had just turned 16, and she was going to turn 16 in like a couple months. But her parents were pretty insistent that she could not date until she was 16 years old. And so I wanted to have the opportunity to spend time with her. And she came up with the ideas like, well, if there's somebody else along, my parents will probably be okay with it. And so I said, well, ask your parents if that's okay. So they said, yes, if there's somebody else along with you, you guys can go out together tonight. So my sister, who is a year younger than me, was in the house, and my parents weren't there that evening. I told her, I said, um, why don't you, since you're not doing anything, why don't you come along with me? And, and she didn't really want to go, but I basically forced the issue. So my sister and I go to pick up this girl. We spend time at a pizza place, and then we take that girl home. And then on the way home, we end up in a car accident. Now, my vehicle, I've shown before, about six years ago, I showed the picture of it. It was a 1947 Dodge pickup. This pickup was customized. It was a street rod. You could hear from a long ways away. It, had, it sounded like a race car. It was awesome. But here's the problem. It was 1947, and while we souped it up and made it into a faster model, 1947, we didn't add seat belts. And so on the way home... Without that other girl, just my sister and I in the vehicle, we end up in an accident. And while I had some bumps and bruises, my sister was hurt severely. And it, was gonna, and it caused many exterior wounds that were going to create scars on face and other parts of her body. And it was rather significant. To say the least that my sister and I's relationship took a turn in that, on that evening would be to really underestimate the situation. I apologized profusely when she finally came home from the hospital, but that was where I ended. I had apologized, and I thought as a guy, that's all that needed to happen. And I lived the next 15 years not even noticing the fact that my sister had withdrawn from me. I was too caught up with myself and what was going on with me to realize that we were in need of reconciliation. Then some things happened that exposed it, and I realized that we were now in our adult years, but we did not have a relationship, and there was a hindrance, and I found out it goes back to that night. I had forced her to go with me for the sake of my own gain, and she paid the price for it. And I merely apologized, but yet she carried scars, both externally and internally, for years. She's my sister, my only sibling, I could just simply say to her, well, that's kind of interesting. That happened 17 years ago. Get over it. Or realize I have been one cold-hearted brother for a very long time and needed to hear from her heart. I can tell you that the once it was revealed, 
that I had caused a wound that had separated us, it did not heal right away. In fact, it took about three to four years of me being aware of it to realize and experience what it meant to reconcile to my sister. But I was motivated because I loved her. Now, I can tell you that along the way, I have wounded other people, and I have been wounded by other people. And I didn't have the same motivation towards reconciliation as I did with my sister. And part of that is because of a lack of love on my part. I didn't see the other people in need of my love or being compelled by the love I'd experienced in Christ to be motivated to go to great ends to reconcile broken relationships. But yet, that's what Paul is speaking to here in this text, and we're going to get into it pretty deeply here in a moment, is that when the love of Christ has been experienced by a human being, it puts you on a course towards reconciliation with other people that you may not even realize. Because when you are reconciled between the gap and distance between God and man, and that you, uh, that you had nothing to do with it, but God did all this work to bridge a relationship with us, then you start realizing there's something that God has within that story that is implied and put upon us. Look at what it says again in this verse 15. And he, Christ, died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now let's continue on. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us then the ministry of reconciliation. All right, so the context of all this work that Christ has done for us to reconcile us to God, done through Christ, that then gives us a charge of a ministry of reconciliation. Continuing on, verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us then the message of reconciliation. So you've got the ministry of reconciliation he's given to us, and he's also given to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore... Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making, us, making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul's giving context. Why does he keep writing to them? Why does he keep visiting the love of God and the love of Christ compels him. We have a broken relationship, and that I still care about you. And so I am no longer, and this verse 16 is huge, I am no longer looking at you as the world would look at you. The world would look at it and say, listen, 
Hasn't he not given everything he's had for you? Hasn't Paul even faced public ridicule for the sake of this church? Hasn't Paul given years of his life for the sake of this church? So how dare you, church, reject his leadership? That could have been Paul's perspective. But rather, because of the work of Christ, a new perspective comes. And that perspective is, they're a new creation. There are people that God is changing. And, and they were once like you, dead in sin and not connected to Christ. They needed reconciled to Christ. And so now Paul is looking at people with two different possible perspectives. Either one, they are a new person in Christ. The old things that they used to be is being changed and transformed before their very eyes. Or two, they don't know Christ and they're in need of the reconciliation that comes from Christ. When you look at people with those two points of view, that is clearly a divine way of looking at others. Is looking at them that they're in either in need of this greatest story of all time found in Jesus Christ or they are in the, in the middle of that message where, where they have been redeemed and God is making them this new creation before your eyes. That is the way Paul began to look at them. And so instead of being offended by what they were saying, he is looking at them with compassion and empathy, realizing they're under oppression. They're under harm. They're hurting. They're being threatened. And one thing I've learned in ministry that is so true, the people that are hurting the most hurt the most. When somebody is really hurting because of what life deals with, they often are the ones hurting others the most because they don't know how to deal with the pain they're dealing with. And the same thing's going on is that these people were under threat. They were hindered. They were losing their confidence. And guess what? They become embittered, and so they hurt others in the process, including the very leader that founded that church. Paul looks at them with compassion because he's looking at them now with the eyes of God is that these are people that are new creation in the eyes of God. And then there are others that need to see Jesus through the life of, of that church. And so he is motivated by his love for Christ to see them changed and to see them reconciled to God and reconciled back to him. Now this term reconciled means basically, as one commentarian put it, means to change thoroughly. So to reconcile something is to change thoroughly. It implies that there's a condition that is either is negative or it's deficient, and to reconcile it means to change thoroughly, to bring it into absolute opposite status. So if it was indebted before beyond measure, it is now full and completely paid for and creditworthy. If it was a case of broken and despised, it is now healed and strong and envied. That's the way that reconciliation works. It changes the picture. So if we have then, as it says in verse 18, so we have been reconciled back to God through Christ. And that is a significant understanding we need to carry, that we are now in right standing with God because God chose to reconcile with us. He was the offendee. We were the offender. So if the offendee, he could have the right as God and just simply judge you and condemn you for all of eternity. Or if he loves us, then he would say, even though I am the offended one, I love you and I will create a means by which you can be reconciled back to me. The problem is, is we had no capacity to make that happen. 
So it had to be all on God to make this happen. And so as one commentarian put it, Matthew Henry, he said this, that, that Christ then is assigned by God to make what couldn't happen on our own. He became the mediator between the two offended parties as assigned by the one who had been offended. And that's an amazing thing. When you think God is the offended one, he's the one that created us to have a relationship with him and to have pleasure with him. We were the ones that walked away from God. And God was the one that says, they don't have the ability to come back to me. Yet I love them. So he looks at his son Jesus and says, I need you to be the mediator. I need you to, want to be the one that would fix this chasm between me and them. And so Christ becomes the mediator between us as people and God himself. And that then, that broken relationship is changed thoroughly. It's reconciled. What was broken is now changed. And, and so then he says, in light of that, if Christ is the one that has reconciled man back to God, and therefore the relationship is restored, then we have this ministry of reconciliation. God is reconciling people to himself through Christ. And this rec reconciliation means that, that past debtedness on our part is now changed thoroughly to now we have full creditworthiness with God. And so this is a huge part of our ministry that we get to go forward with. But there's a challenge in this. We need to understand what does it mean to have a ministry of reconciliation. We could talk about the story I just said, that God loved us so much that he wanted to bring us back in a relationship with him, that he provided the mediator in Jesus Christ. And that certainly is the message. But what does the ministry, what does a ministry of reconciliation look like? Because he says, I charge you. I am making you. I'm giving to you this ministry of reconciliation. What does that look like? Well, first of all, you have to understand in the original story of reconciliation where Christ is the mediator, something has just happened there. And it's called imputation. Imputation means that, that something was projected upon you that you didn't do yourself. So what happened was is Christ, as the sinless Christ, who had no debts between him and God, we're over here, we have all the debt in the world that we can't possibly pay back to God, Christ then becomes the mediator, which then pays the debt here because he had all the creditworthiness in the world. He had all the resources in the world to overcome all the indebtedness of mankind. And so what happens is, is that Christ then takes who he is as the righteous one and imputes upon us his creditworthiness and then makes us completely righteous and creditworthy before God. That imputation's important to understand because it's no work. We had no capacity to pay that debt. Christ had all the resources to pay it in full and he spent it. He spent it so that we could have a lack of debt that we can then actually be seen as the righteous one. And so that becomes our ministry is that we help people understand that they're separated from God and we do so by showing that how we've been reconciled to God. And so there becomes this ministry by which we can help move from one account to the other, from the account of indebtedness to an account of creditworthiness. From, account, from being separated from God to being one that's with God. And this gives us 
ministry opportunity. Now, how does this then look in flesh? How do we then minister out of reconciliation? Paul gives an example in Philemon. I'm actually going to have you turn to one of the smallest books in the Bible. It's right before the book of Hebrews. So if you go to the right in your Bibles, it's right before the book of Hebrews. This tiny little book with no chapters, just one. So it's just going to be Philemon. And we're going to look at verse 17 and 18. And uh, actually 17 to 21. So what you got going on here, the context is this. Philemon is a man that, that Paul had led to Jesus Christ, had mentored, had discipled, had given his time to, to move to, to help him through the message of reconciliation, had moved Philemon, who was anti-God, to a place of relationship where God had changed his life and was reconciled to God. So there was a relationship that had previously existed between Philemon and Paul that was significant. Paul had since moved on to other cities, but in the past, there was a huge relationship between Philemon and Paul. Paul is now in prison in Rome. While in prison in Rome, he's still given opportunity to preach the gospel. A credible thing happened. A young man named Onesimus gives his life to Christ while hearing the message of Paul. Onesimus was a runaway slave from Philemon. Philemon was a rich man. And, and Onesimus had run away thinking he was as far as he could be from his slave owner. And then he runs into the mentor of Philemon, his slave owner. I mean, can you imagine? I think I've gone far enough. I've gone by boat. I've gone by land. I'm now in Rome. I'm far from Philemon. I'm safe. And I get saved by the message of a man who's best friends and mentor to my slave owner. That's bad luck. He thought he was hiding out. So you have this situation that's very interesting. Now what you have going on is Paul writes a letter to Philemon. He hands it to Onesimus to take back to the slave owner. Philemon. Imagine, it's like, okay, so Philemon's now been found out, discovers he's being led to the Lord by a mentor of his slave owner who he had stolen from and ran away from, and now he's going to be sent back by Paul to Philemon. Interesting story, right? So let's look what happens in the message. So Paul says this, so to Philemon, so if you consider me a partner Welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. All right, so I'm going to have fun and just outline this first of all, okay? Philemon owes Paul. Onesimus owes Philemon. Paul then imputes upon Onesimus's debt his own account with Philemon. And then Onesimus then is reconciled back to Philemon and then says, and then they're all refreshed in Christ. Do you realize what has just happened here? A debt is going on between Onesimus and Philemon. The offender is Onesimus. The offendee is Philemon. And so there's a debt. And it's a debt that Onesimus cannot pay back. He does not have the resources to do so. Meanwhile, Paul's looking at this saying, well, 
Philemon owes me. So why don't I take the debt of Onesimus and put it on my account so that the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus can be restored? Hence, the ministry of reconciliation. Do you think that this was just for the sake of Philemon and Onesimus that Paul did this? Or was there something greater going on? Why is it found in Scripture, this very story in and of itself? The reality is this. Each of us as human beings run into situations where we offend a brother or sister. Or we have divided ourselves from somebody else. We experience broken relationships pretty often. And the pain can be pretty severe. But when a relationship that seemed impossibly irreconcilable becomes reconciled, you have to wonder, what was the motive behind it to go to the great lengths to reconcile that relationship? And in this case, the motive is so that Christ can be glorified and that they can all be refreshed and that the church, the greater church, hearing the story can be refreshed and renewed. So I look at this and say, wow, how incredible is the story of the gospel displayed by the relationships of these three men. One owed one, one owed the other, and the other took the debt for the sake of the relationship. Wow. What if, what if the church, as compelled by the love we have for Christ, began to have the same heart in, the, in regards to this idea of, of a ministry of reconciliation, what wounds could be healed in the name of Christ? What relationships could be store, restored in the name of Christ? Who could benefit and discover the actual reconciliation between God and man through a relationship and ministry of reconciliation that happens between two people? A little bit of understanding came to me in an experience that happened a few years ago. In 2008, I was in a, at a gathering in San Antonio, Texas, between a group of, of youth pastors and, and a, a, a senior pastor from an inner city church in Baltimore was at the gathering. This man was a black man. That's only important in the sense that you can understand the message he was about to give to a bunch of white youth pastors. As he's speaking about his heart to see the gospel flourish in the inner city, he looked at everybody in the room, including myself, and said, have you ever apologized for the sin of racism so that people, the people I work with, can be healed? And I have to be honest. I didn't like the message I just received. In fact, I looked at him thinking, how dare you? You don't even know my life to say that I would need to apologize for racism that is holding back people from understanding the gospel in your city. I've gone to Inner Harbor, but that's about as far as I've gone into the city of Baltimore. And when you look at my life, I'm on record for being a reconciler or being an advocate for it is not by tribe, it is not by skin color, it is not by gender. All people are the objects of God's love and God is reconciling all mankind to himself, regardless of skin color, gender, slave or free. It's just biblical. 
I grew up where in my hometown of 3,000 people that there were only two black families in that entire town. And one of those black families was my next door neighbors. And we interacted with them as if they were our family. I knew nothing different. Those were my young years. I was eight years old, nine years old, and 10 years old living next to them. And it was normal. They were human beings and they loved Jesus. When I got into ministry, an apprenticeship right out of college, my first church was in the South. They offered me the job permanently, full-time. But before I accepted the job, one of the, the leaders in that church told me that I was not allowed to have, and I won't use the language he did, but not allowed to have black children in the church. Needless to say, I turned the position down. So I'm on the record of having proven that I am not one who is racist. But I now have a pastor telling me, have you ever apologized to someone for the sins that have been committed against the people I serve that is standing in as a barrier to understanding the gospel? I was troubled because I could tell there was a passion and an energy, but also a wrestling in my spirit to know I can't dismiss what he's saying, but at the same time, I couldn't get past the fact that I had not done anything wrong. A year later, I'm now in Minneapolis, Minnesota at another gathering where some of those same leaders are there. But now it's a leadership summit of the Evangelical Free Church of America, of which there are pastors that are Hispanic, and yes, African-American and black. It was of all color that were there. And I saw a pastor that, that as I'm, he got to speak at this one sidebar, this breakout session, and I was very inspired by his message. And I pulled him aside, and I shared with him what happened a year before in San Antonio. I said, help me understand why I should apologize. Help me understand what he was saying to me. And he explained, he says, you may not have sinned directly to them, but the people that I minister to look at you as a pastor in the white church and assume and project upon you what had happened 150 years ago and has happened even since in modern times. I mean, after all, I'd experienced, he was right, racism still exists in the church. So I knew it. I'd experienced it. And, and he's saying that, that, that they don't hear the gospel when they hear white people advancing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, knowing that they've experienced from some, some of the same people with the same message, saying that you are second to them. And they can't explain or accept a God who would see white as superior to their black skin. Some things began to click in my head. That while I may have never, to my knowledge, caused harm because of the color of someone's skin, I am a poster, pastor, in the eyes of some, as to the problem with the gospel. Because for some, all they've ever experienced is that that gospel is about skin color and not about the human soul. It made sense to me that perhaps just like when I'm a coach of a baseball team and one of my parents of my players goes and rails off and, and embarrasses themselves to one of the, the players on the opposing team because they didn't like their attitude and how they beat our team. And they made a huge ob obstacle of it. And then I'm left to look at that coach the next day in this tournament and have to say, while I didn't do anything wrong to that coach or to that team, 
I felt obligated because that parent's misbehavior represented the entire team. I felt obligated to go to that coach and apologize for the behavior of our team. Would you accept my apology so that we could play a game that was sincere and rightly received? Did I do the wrong? No. But did I represent the wrong? Yes. And I needed to reconcile that situation. And I see that's what happens today is that often people can't receive the gospel because there's something in their past that has hurt them. Imagine all the people that are out there in this world that have not accepted the gospel because they were violated sexually by somebody in the church. Imagine what apologies need to happen on behalf of us for their sake so that they can hear the gospel again. Talk about reconciliation. And then when you look at that when we carry out, that people know we're the, that we're followers of Christ and then they won't receive your forgiveness or that you continue to throw their, their mistakes in their face and you wonder why they can't receive the gospel, it's because we don't have the heart and see things from the godly point of view. Remember, Paul says, I no longer look at things from a worldly point of view. I now look at it from the godly point of view. And that is that he loves us so much that he took these rotten sinners, all of us, and moved his debt, our debt, onto Christ. That is our message. Look what it says back in 2 Corinthians 5 and how he ends this passage. In verse 20, he says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Compelled by love, our ministry of reconciliation can then then shine brightly the message of reconciliation, which is all of us, fell short. All of us were in debt, and only one person had the resources to pay for it. And when we get that message correct in our hearts and our minds, and then we are motivated by love, then the ministry of reconciliation becomes that of when there's broken relationship to the glory of God, we seek to the greatest end, and even if it gets messy, to see those relationships reconciled so that Christ can be glorified. Which gives us this takeaway, these three takeaways. First of all, none of this happens unless you're in love with Jesus. You're never going to be motivated enough to get into a messy situation unless you're in love with Jesus. Because that love will compel you. Because you have the perspective of realizing, I was so in debt, I could have never had hope. But because of what Christ did, I'm now seen as debt-free by God. When you understand that, you love him, and then you start having compassion and empathy to those who need Jesus, which then leads us to this, that, that, that Christ's example of reconciling us to the Father gives us a model by which we can do life with other people, and therefore a ministry model for how we can do life with other people. When there's broken relationship, we go to the greatest end out of love for God to see those relationships reconciled, changed thoroughly. And if necessary, taking on the debt and mistakes of others so that that is no longer a barrier for them and the gospel. If I have to apologize to 20 different black people over the next few years for the sake of them being able to hear the gospel, then so be it. 
Let it be. If I have to apologize on behalf of others so that they can see Jesus because of what the church has done and violating them, then so be it. It grieves my heart that I have to apologize in those situations. But at the same time, if that's what will remove the barrier so they can see the gospel, then I will. Lastly, our message of reconciliation is that the righteous Christ, the righteous, perfect Christ, who had all these resources, became sin for you and I so that we can become righteous and and, and reconciled to this great, loving God. That's our message. We're all in debt. Christ had the resources. He paid it so that we can have a relationship with God. That's our message. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I, I admit my love falls short because there are many reconcile, uh, needs for reconciliation, many broken relationships over the years. I wasn't too motivated to fix or to seek out, to, to make things right, or even to apologize when I may have done very little wrong in my eyes. But God, that brokenness is a reminder that we are all broken. We were all broken before you until Jesus was sent by you to become our mediator. So God, forgive us when we have hearts that are hardened, where we choose not to reconcile or choose to hold on to our bitterness and our offense. Or Lord, when we choose not to offer our apologies when we've wronged another. God, forgive us for such a stance. But God, if you motivate us to to begin to work in these relationships, I just ask God that, that in those reconciled relationships that the story will be that there's this great God who loves us and that love compels us to go to the greatest end and to fight for restoration in life. So we submit to your authority. We want to be your ambassadors with that message of reconciliation, but also having a ministry of reconciliation. So God, do a fresh work. Break us where our pride is hard. Tenderize our hearts when they're towards compassion when somebody is offended, that we can be a part of your work in their life. In Jesus' name I ask. Paul wrote this passage to a church in Ephesus, and I believe it connects very well. It says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. Follow, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So whatever separates us, we get rid of it, and we begin to work towards wholeness. It gets messy, trust me. It gets messy, it gets difficult, but we play the long game for the sake of the glory of Christ. And if you've ever been offended by the church or hurt by the church, and that keeps you from receiving the good news of Jesus Christ, let me say on behalf of the church, we're sorry. We're sinners just like you, and we make mistakes, but we're being changed every day. And if that offense has happened to you, please do not hold it against us or Christ but find forgiveness and hear the message that you've heard today that Christ who became sin for you so you can be reconciled to God. 
If you have a situation where you have a broken relationship, you want to pray with somebody about how to reconcile that relationship, there'll be people underneath the cross who'll be glad to pray with you. I'll be up front. This is about letting the gospel be free of the offense so that people can hear. So let's receive the charge. Let's get rid of all malice, bitterness, a lack of forgiveness, and let's let our lives be that of love, compelled by Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.